Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of Vital Chronicle. Today we have a special program. We're going to take a look at natural gas, which has become an essential fuel in the United States, not only for generating electricity and of course for use in homes, for heating, etc., but also as an export commodity. A uh, few decades ago, natural gas was regarded as a depleted resource. Now it is a very valuable one, thanks to a resource and a technology or several technologies coming together. We're going to look at the greening of natural gas, how it can become more environmentally acceptable. And I have today two experts on the subject from the consultancy Guidehouse. They are Dan Peters, Director Energy for Guidehouse. He is based in the Netherlands. He has extensive experience in the greening of energy. And by Mark Eisenhower, as a partner, Energy and Sustainability Infrastructure, also for Guidehouse. He is based in Washington, D.C., and he has spent a very fruitful career in natural gas, both in the United States and abroad. Then we have Peter Morisi, a very interesting, sometimes controversial commentator who raises the alarm about the states going broke if the federal government, or more precisely, the Congress doesn't stop dithering and start passing the right laws to make available substantial sums of money to each and every state. Dan, you have done a lot of work and are working constantly on making natural gas cleaner, more of a renewable, if you will, and switching it into hydrogen. Would you like to explain the role of hydrogen and the future clean role of natural gas? Because it is a fossil fuel. Natural gas has, um has many functions in the energy system today, uh, but in fighting climate change and, and moving towards a, a decarbonized energy system, uh, while still, uh, you know, um, wanting to, to, to heat homes and industries and, uh, uh, and heavy fuel heavy transport, um, there is a, a growing um, a promising role for hydrogen. Um, hydrogen, uh, you know, the lightest molecule, um, can be used for actually many of the, the applications uh, for which natural gas is used today. It can also be transported through the same gas infrastructure uh, that is around uh, today. Um, so uh, it is, I think, going to be increasingly um, obvious to transition from a, a natural gas system today towards um, uh, yeah, what some people call a, a hydrogen economy. Mark, in Washington, are there other ways of making natural gas even more acceptable from an environmental point of view than it is now? Uh, absolutely, Llewellyn. The way that you know we view the systems at Guidehouse is that uh, the natural gas infrastructure and the electric value chain are very complementary in terms of getting to uh, the mid-century decarbonization goals. And there's a number of steps uh, that we think uh, we can make in the near term to start that journey and decarbonize the product uh, that's in uh, the natural gas infrastructure. In particular, uh, renewable natural gas uh, can play an important role 
the technology is advanced to the point where it can be produced today. Uh, the challenge is, is that it's more expensive uh, than, the, uh, than the natural hydrocarbons. Um, and then as you progress along the path that you were talking to Don about, um, as we start to bring hydrogen into the system, you can have hydrogen enriched natural gas to complement the RNG. And those two steps in particular uh, will take us a long way towards decarbonizing uh, some of uh, the production that's required uh, for the future use off of the infrastructure. How polluting is natural gas as we use it today, as it is burned in gas turbines today? It's the cleanest burning fossil fuel, is, as you're aware. Uh, the technologies uh, that are making engines more efficient, uh, the emissions technologies are all been vastly improved. Uh, there's a number of companies uh, that have joined together uh, to reduce line loss and emissions of methane directly uh, from the natural gas infrastructure systems. I think we're improving by leaps and bounds in that regard. Um, so I, I think that with existing technology, uh, we are able to bring the carbon footprint down, uh, but there are clearly uh, things we can do in the future to continue that journey. If we extract the carbon from the natural gas, even by making hydrogen from it, uh, what happens to that carbon? So we, we are also doing work at Guidehouse with respect to carbon capture systems uh, that you alluded to. Uh, maybe uh, Don uh, might be better positioned to uh, give us some insights there. That's been part of uh, the scope of work that he's currently looking at. So there is maybe maybe good to, to just point out the two ways in which to produce hydrogen. So indeed, using natural gas, capturing uh, uh, CO2 uh, and uh, storing that below ground in kind of empty gas fields, that is a promising uh, technology. Um, that is being implemented uh, in, in port locations uh, around the world or, or planning to do so in the coming years. Um, and then there's the ability to produce hydrogen from um, uh, wind power and, and using wind and solar PV, so basically the splitting of water uh, in what we call an electrolysis process. So that is what we call renewable hydrogen. So using natural gas uh, and CCS to produce low carbon uh, hydrogen, plus the ability to use um, um, renewable electricity to produce clean, renewable hydrogen. Those forms of hydrogen, uh, they work together very well. And um, yeah, that is where, especially in the green hydrogen, the renewable hydrogen, um, uh, we see a, a large, a very large potential for cost reductions going forward. What is blue hydrogen? Yeah, blue hydrogen is uh, uh, the option of natural gas combining with CCS that's generally typified uh, called blue blue hydrogen. Um, the renewable option that I just uh, talked about is generally called green hydrogen. Uh, Mark, uh, the United States, I assume, is at this point the largest consumer of natural gas. What do we have to do to make it green on a vast scale? Well, I, I think there's a, a number of things that we can do, Llewellyn, that we've talked about. Uh, but I think the situation that many of our clients find themselves in is we're going to have to create policies that you know, put the right structure in place in order for companies 
to take that glide path toward the mid-century decarbonization goals. When you think about the stakeholder groups that utilities in particular uh, you know, need to answer to, so you have shareholders, you have uh, the regulators, policymakers, and then the communities in which they serve. And what, the, what those stakeholders have set for the current framework is to have a low cost, reliable and safe energy delivery system. And many of the things that we've talked about, uh, renewable natural gas, hydrogen, uh, and other emerging technologies are going to be more expensive than the systems that we have in place today. So the policies need to incent the companies to make the right decisions to make those investments so we get the good balance between deploying capital correctly and wisely over the long term and achieving those mid-century goals. A number of utilities, American utilities, have said that they plan to be carbon zero by the middle of the century. Uh, can they do that with natural gas in their mix or will they have to try to substitute solar and wind and maybe some hydrogen? Well, as we talked about earlier, Llewellyn, it's a complement of all the above. We do expect more renewables in the generation mix uh, coupled with what you do with the infrastructure. Together, uh, the studies that we've done and uh, Don in particular has done some very deep dives into this subject matter. We think that you can use the two systems together and get to those goals. Uh, there may be different products that are moving through the infrastructure and the delivery system, but it is achievable to use the natural gas infrastructure coupled with the electric system to get to the mid-century goals that many of the companies are speaking to. Don, is Europe further ahead than the US on the use of clean natural gas, either as hydrogen or where the carbon has been removed in some way or captured? Yeah, I, I see um, uh, that Europe is moving ahead in, in setting quite stringent uh, climate targets. There's uh, uh, right this year uh, another acceleration uh, called the European Green Deal. Uh, that will trigger large-scale development of, uh, of hydrogen uh, and, and CCS carbon storage projects. Um, but I also see, um, you know, parts of the U.S. moving very rapidly, uh, and some of the announced investments in in, in hydrogen uh, in you know Canada, uh, in in the U.S. Um, so it's it's a it's um, a development that we that we see globally. I mean, uh, Japan, South Korea. Uh, China, everybody invests in, in, in scaling of hydrogen. Uh, there is really a, a feeling of a kind of new momentum in, in driving down costs. And there's even the, um, uh, the promise that, that the cost of this renewable green hydrogen uh, can almost fall as low as, as the natural gas price in the foreseeable future. Um, it's also a way of storing energy, isn't it, hydrogen? If we use surplus generation from wind, from solar, from uh, uh, hydro, uh, it can be stored if it's converted by electrolysis into hydrogen, can it not? That's correct, yeah. <clears throat> that, is, um, that is indeed uh, the starting point for, for many uh, uh, investments that we see being announced today. Uh, there's a big project uh, um, in the North Sea to build um, 180 gigawatts of, of, of offshore wind uh, between uh, the UK, the Netherlands, and Norway, uh, and bringing 
part of that power onshore and creating uh, hydrogen uh, just makes sense uh, to basically uh, ensure that uh, most of the, the power that is produced can be used and stored. So it's indeed hydrogen and um, uh, renewable electricity are uh, very much complementary uh, uh, indeed, yeah. Mark, in the US, is there a, a struggle between going solar, going wind, and reforming hydrogen? I, I mean, reforming natural gas to hydrogen, or uh, is this a natural progression in tandem? It's, it is a natural progression, Llewellyn, but again, uh, you know, we need reforms in policy uh, in order for the utility companies in particular to understand, you know, how they're going to get compensated for making the transition. Um, there will be parts of the system, uh, both on the electric side and the natural gas side, uh, that are going to continue to have to be amortized uh, over their respective customer bases. You know, a lot of these investments are long live and we need to figure out how to best utilize them and how they fit uh, into this future decarbonized world. This is for either of you, but hydrogen isn't uh, a new fuel. It's been talked about for a long time after the end and during the energy crisis in 1970s and the 80s. There was a lot of emphasis on hydrogen, but it was directed towards transportation and fuel cells. Uh, that doesn't seem to be so active now. It appears that we've decided that electric cars are the way to go. Would that be a reasonable assumption? And therefore, we've decided de facto that natural gas will be used to generate electricity as hydrogen or as natural gas or some mixture of the two. Yeah, uh, I think there's a big difference between um, the, the earlier discussion of hydrogen, the earlier promise of hydrogen, and today, the biggest difference, or one of the differences, is um, the huge decrease in cost of solar PV. So producing uh, renewable hydrogen today is far cheaper than uh, 20, 30 years ago. So that's one. Uh, it, it just means that it's, it's, it's much more realistic now to, to talk about the scaling up of, of hydrogen compared to several decades ago. Um, indeed, what we see is also uh, in, in light passenger uh, vehicles, um, the enormous promise of uh, battery electric vehicles. Uh, where we see a role for hydrogen, in particular in transport, um, is in, in heavy trucking, so long distance trucking. Uh, that's where uh, fuel cell uh, trucks can really play uh, a role to decarbonize uh, trucking segments. So, and indeed, um, decarbonizing the steel industry, decarbonizing the chemical industry, so heavy industry, uh, power production, uh, but also uh, hydrogen can be used in buildings to heat homes. Um, so there's a variety of, uh, of, of options, but indeed, uh, and, and there is also some focus on, on passenger cars, but generally it's, uh, it's felt that hydrogen can play a role in the harder to decarbonize uh, heavy transport sectors. Mark, in the 1970s, natural gas was regarded as a depleted fuel that uh, the, the Department of Energy, the very new Department of Energy, announced or were told reporters once, don't worry about natural gas, it's a depleted fuel, it's over. And now it is really the primary fuel. How has that happened? Is that simply because of fracking or are there other forces at work? 
Well, I, I think it's a combination, Llewellyn. We, you know, we were fracking wells uh, well before the shale revolution. Um, really coming out of the 70s, uh, the focus in, in terms of natural gas production was on tight sands and other formations that required stimulating uh, the reservoir in order to get the hydrocarbons out. Um, what the shale revolution was able to do was to perfect some of those techniques, uh, horizontal drilling in particular, so you could keep the drill bit in the reservoir uh, as opposed to a vertical well where you had a very limited amount of space uh, to get into that rock uh, and extract the hydrocarbon. So it's, been, it's really been a combination of the improvements in drilling and fracturing the reservoirs and, and how to increase that to almost, you know, we, a lot of us think of it as more of manufacturing. So there's very low risk in, in drilling these wells. Uh, the production uh, is very prolific and there's been a lot of shale uh, that we could not exploit before the change in the technology. So it wasn't a limited resource as much as it was the technology that we were applying changed. And in Europe, Dan, how secure is the supply of natural gas? Russia is a big supplier, it's building pipelines in Europe, and yet the Russians have been known to curtail the supply of natural gas for political reasons. How secure is it? Yeah, in recent years, we've seen a lot of LNG terminals being built. So almost all the countries in Europe uh, have been interested in building LNG terminals. Um, what we've seen is that uh, this, this does increase the security of supply. So you can basically import uh, liquefied natural gas from places like, including the US, right? A, a big export of LNG. So that helps to, uh, to ensure security of supply. Um, plus there are some new pipelines being built also uh, from, from other regions. But indeed, there is a discussion on, on uh, security of supply. Uh, this partly also drives the political support for um, renewable gas uh, that can be produced uh, domestically as large volumes. How much gas will come after the new North Sea fuel? How much hydrogen will it produce? Um, well, what, what we think is that ultimately hydrogen will be demand constraint. So basically the production of hydrogen, the volumes are almost limitless. I mean, um, uh, you can produce um, a lot of hydrogen from, from offshore wind. You can also produce it from solar PV in, uh, in southern regions. You can produce it in, in the deserts, uh, large volumes and, and ship it using pipelines to transport it elsewhere. So really, ultimately, re renewable electricity becoming so cheap um, um, Volumes are not going to be an issue anymore going forward. And finally, hydrogen, which we're looking to, and which you certainly are looking to, uh, it doesn't have quite the same energy content as natural gas, does it? That's correct. Yeah, it's about a third of the energy content. So you need more volume uh, of it. That's that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Can you put more volume through the same turbine, or do you need a larger turbine? Yeah, some modifications in turbines are, are necessary. Yeah? We, we're not saying that um, using hydrogen in the existing uh, gas infrastructure is something that one-on-one -on -one, uh, can happen one-on-one -on -one straight away. So some modifications 
in, in turbine, uh, turbines are needed. Uh, a company like GE is offering a wide range of hydrogen-ready turbines today, um, but in a range of, uh, of demand, uh, of, of uses, energy uses, uh, some modifications will be needed. This is all very exciting. Uh, Mark, in the US, we are building some hydrogen burning plants, are we not, or some hydrogen using plants? Uh, we are indeed, Llewellyn. I would say they're uh, uh, far and few in between relative to where we need to go. I think a lot of the work uh, that Don's talking about that's occurring in the EU uh, can be leveraged uh, to help the uh, North America move in the same direction. And we've really seen uh, the market here in North America catch up very quickly uh, with what our colleagues in the EU have been doing. So definitely achievable. This is all very exciting. What does the future of natural gas supply look like? Is it fairly uh, good? Are we going to have a hundred years supply? Would that be a reasonable calculation? Or are we going to have a crisis? Are we going to talk about peak gas the way we used to talk about peak oil? I don't think we're, we're headed towards a crisis. I think as we bring other products like renewable natural gas, hydrogen and rich natural gas, the hydrogen that, that you and Don have been talking about into the system, uh, I think, as Dan said, especially with hydrogen, that the production capabilities uh, are almost limitless. So uh, I, I, would, I would not uh, forecast a crisis per se, although it's always good to plan for one, uh, but I don't think we have a a natural gas crisis on the horizon. It must be exciting for you gentlemen to be working in the clean future, driving towards a cleaner future, uh, keeping climate change at bay. Uh, is that part of what stimulates you? Is that part of why you get up in the morning? Llewellyn, I, I'm having so much fun uh, helping our clients understand how to position themselves for the future. It's exciting, it's energizing. Uh, and it's really a, a great to be part of this and uh, really appreciate our clients allowing Guidehouse to support them and trying to uh, focus on that, that pathway uh, towards the future. The last word from Dan in Amsterdam. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing that uh, uh, clean energy almost becomes business as usual. So uh, there's a lot of excitement today. There's a big promise. Uh, we're not there yet. There's a lot of work. Uh, uh, to be done. It was great to be on your show, uh, Llewellyn, to, to talk about this. And uh, I hope uh, we get the opportunity to, uh, to talk again once, uh, Llewellyn. Well, I thank Mark Eisenhower in Washington and uh, Dan Peters in Amsterdam, both with the Globe Circling Consultancy Guidehouse. Cheers and good luck on your mission. Thank you. Thank you. Peter Morisi is a columnist, economist, professor at the University of Maryland's R.H. Smith School of Business. I am an admirer. I have enjoyed his writing for many years now. Sometimes I agree 100% and sometimes I disagree 100%. But <laughs> it's a great honor to know him and to have him on this broadcast. Peter, you have an extraordinary column you put together in which you say if the federal government does not act quickly, if Congress does not get its act together very fast to bail out the states, there will be a massive catastrophe 
with unemployment going through the roof, 11% of the workforce is employed by the, federal, by the local governments, and of course all our services will stop. How dire is it and why does it have to be thus? Well, there are 20 million people under normal circumstances that work for state and local governments. That's as large as manufacturing and construction put together. Uh, the states have taken an enormous hit from the, the shutdown. Remember, they depend on hotel taxes, car rental ta taxes, airport fees, income taxes, sales taxes. You know, with half of the families in America losing income, as well as those unemployed, it's just simply too big a hit on their tax base. They're likely to look at somewhere between $250 billion and $500 billion. In the meantime, they're dealing with the crisis. And so the second half of this year, we're going to see some major layoffs if, if, this, if the states don't get some assistance from the federal government, just like the airline industry did. And the thing about it is that we know the states are going to come back. It's not like the airlines. We're going to need municipal services. Uh, we can debate as to whether the state and local governments are too big or too small, but this is not the time for that. Right now, we have to keep things going. And uh, you say in this article, which I have in front of me, fiddling while the economy burns. How urgent is the crisis? Oh, I think it's quite urgent. We're near the middle of the year. Uh, the state governments generally cannot borrow to balance their budgets. They can fudge that a bit. I mean, it isn't 100%. It can be tinkered with. But by and large, if they saw 25% of their revenue, there's going to be a lot more layoffs. We've already had one and a half million people laid off from state and local governments in the last 60 days in April and May. Uh, and that's going to continue. Uh, right now, though, the Democrats come up with this massive bill, far in excess of what the state governors have asked for. You know, there's a consensus among Republicans and Democrats through the National Conference of Governors, National Association of Governors, of how much assistance they need. And it's a reasonable request, near as I can, can calculate and reckon. So you got the Democrats on the one hand uh, coming up with a $3 trillion bill, and the governors are asking for $500 billion. So the Republicans aren't going to pass that in the Senate. And meanwhile, over in the Senate, Mitch McConnell's saying, well, I don't want to bail out no pension funds. Uh, and let's wait and see what really develops. Well, if we wait and see what really develops, it's, it's going to be letting the lifeboats go out half-occupied half on the Titanic. And how do you think that sanity will be brought to the Congress? I think what will happen is, is we'll start to see uh, restrictions on local services. Uh, the, the people will have to be laid off in order to make ends meet. Gov you know, state governments can't write checks for which there's no money in the bank, and local governments especially. And so if we start to see inadequate police protection, inadequate garbage pickup, and things of that nature, you know, then we're going to see some, some movement. Uh, libraries won't reopen. The great reopening here that we're going to have is going to be very incomplete, because the local governments won't have the money to, to do it. And then people will reckon that something needs to be done. Cheers, Peter. Thank you for coming on the broadcast. All the best. That's our show for today. Thank you for coming along. My guests today have been Don Peters, Mark Eisenhower, and Peter Marisi. Mind how you go. We're opening up, but please don't open up into disaster. Do it carefully. Until next week. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available 
as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.